0: You're listening to the MEX podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences.
1: I think it works as a pragmatic engineering solution, but from a desirable piece of product design, it's lacking every attribute that you would expect from product design.
0: Hello, I'm Marek Pavowski, founder of MEX, and that was Paul Campbell, my guest for this episode, talking about the wheelchair, today's wheelchairs specifically. Paul is the Chief Product Officer at Central Robotics, and this is a company which has been founded specifically to address some of those challenges around wheelchairs and what can be done to make them, well, just better, better for those who will be seated in them, not just in what they can do, but how they feel and you know, how they help to define a better relationship between the wheelchair user and the spaces that they will inhabit. Now, this is an area that I really don't have much familiarity with. So I found it fascinating to hear about Paul's own experiences, largely, in his case, through the lens of how a wheelchair became part of his father's life, to try to understand it a bit more and and get my head around some of these design considerations. Before we get into a bit more about Paul, I'd recommend taking a pause here. Go and have a look at Centaur Robotics. Google it, or you can go to the show notes for this episode at mobileuserexperience.com, and there's a link there. Get a picture in your mind of how different this wheelchair looks. So it's at the pre-order stage currently, so not all of the details are out there. But what they've shown so far is a powered chair. It's a connected chair. It's a chair that's smart enough to be self-balancing, and it's sculpted in this form, which, to my eyes at least, it speaks more about what it enables than about the disability which might have caused someone to to need the chair in the first place. Now, prior to Centaur, Paul had spent his career at Ford Motor Company. He started in the UK in 1980 until he ended up becoming chief designer, shaping the company's most important vehicles like the transit van uh, in the, the early 2010s and the new factory which would go on to produce them in Turkey and we talk about that and one of the things which struck me is how Paul has carried forward the sense of design as a craft from those early days in automotive to a world that we live in now in which design you know unfolds in a much more digital environment and there's this lovely moment when he talks about walking into Ford's site at Dunton in the UK, aged 23, and seeing rows of these 30-metre-long layout tables stretching out before him, with every aspect of a car's design laid out in hard copy, You're literally being able to inhabit and walk among the minutiae of a design as complex as a vehicle. You know, I think there's something in that, I think. I really do. It's a a metaphor that we could give some thought to as to how when all of the materials you're working with are virtual, you might still be able to recreate that sense of being immersed in them, being fully immersed in the craft the same way that someone might smell the sawdust or hear the sound of, of metal. So Paul was generous in the way he shared his experiences, you know, going right back to early years with toys and television to find his design inspirations. And I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'll be back at the end with a bit more on what's been happening in the MEX community. But for now, here's my conversation with Paul Campbell, Chief Product Designer at Central Robotics. when you think back right back to beginning as a designer is there an aspect of those early experiences that you had that with hindsight now you think best equipped you for the kind of work you find yourself doing today ah ah good question and um, the beauty of hindsight eh uh...
1: What best equipped me for being a designer and and doing what I'm doing today? I think my, I have, I have always been interested in product, in, in, in how things are made. And I always aspire to things that I couldn't have, you know, physical, you know, sort of objects that I couldn't have. And it wasn't sort of like that I wanted to make a copy of something, but I can remember being about nine, I suppose. This will reveal my age, but um, Stingray was on the TV for the first time.
0: Okay. Well, w- without wanting to make you feel too old, I'm afraid Stingray might be even before my time. So what for, for the uninitiated, what was Stingray?
1: Stingray was a puppet show by the people that made Thunderbirds. It was one of their early series.
0: Ah, okay. Right. I think we've got our first link for the show notes there. We'll put in a link to Stingray so that uh, people can go and see some of this for themselves. So, yeah, it was set in the
1: future. It was um, an alternative to space travel. It was all set in uh, underwater scenes and, and you know had various underwater uh, characters that were kind of like involved in the plot. But it was the submarine that really captured my imagination and I really wanted one. And you couldn't get them in the shops at the time. And so I must have spent a lifetime trying to make a plausible, viable, you know, representation of this submarine. (laughs) And I think from there on, I've kind of like tried to improve and improve my ability to to make what I have in my mind, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And and at that point, I, I wasn't. I wasn't equipped to be able to even make anything that you would recognise as this submarine that I was uh, so passionate about.
0: Did you have access to the tools to be able to attempt it though at home? Yeah, you know, was there a, a, a bit of a workshop there to actually have a crack at this? Well, my father had loads of tools, but
1: yeah, it was I was not I was not skilled enough to to even understand the the first. Steps to actually making a really good model of this. I I leapt from the idea of this is what I want to how do I make it and th- there weren't all of the 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 kind of like the process steps of you know sort of like what you would have to go through to you know sort of make a hollow metal model of a submarine. I think I even tried to make it in plasticine. It was so fragile that, you know, it really disappointed me. You know, I knew what I wanted it to be made of. And I knew, I, you know, I knew what size. I knew everything, but all the detail about what I wanted. But I was just utterly incapable of making a 3D version of what I wanted.
0: But I mean, hey, no lack of ambition there. I mean, a submarine is possibly along the more ambitious side of the scale for a, a young boy to want to make.
1: It didn't seem didn't at all occur to me that it was ambitious. <laughs> it was <laughs> not at all, uh, and and it, I think I think you know over time I've kind of like nibbled away at trying to achieve what I have in my imagination. I suppose.
0: So when you flash that forward to the future, I mean, it's I guess it occurs to me that you are still working on vehicles in one form or another, and that has been a big part of your career. They they might not be submarines, but um, are you able to connect any strands back to that as to what you now find useful in your day-to-day in terms of process you know clearly there was a moment of inspiration there from something that you noticed in in the outside world you're taking on design inspiration from an external source but are are there other things which you know you're now finding actually those were the origins of those skills in your day-to-day work now ah good
1: question um i'm really not conscious of how all of what i can do has evolved Fundamentally, I think I'm a sculptor. <laughs> Fundamentally, I sort of like think in 3D. If I have a project, I kind of like can visualize the start to the end of manufacturing something. Now, or almost in really fine detail. And what I learned from you know the age of nine to sort of like my t- my my time at at college was that. You know the the the, the 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 time scale of um, from concept to 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 fulfilment satisfaction uh, had to had to expand massively. <laughs> so, and I started realizing there was millions of little steps that you had to go through to get to where you wanted to be. Uh, and I suppose now I can think projects all the way through. Um, I don't actually have to realize the project in, in, in its entirety to be able to to kind of like get satisfaction. You know, I've kind of like I'll, I'll think of some project and I don't know, some object that I'd like to make. And then I'll, I'll go through all the steps in very quickly in my head of how to get there. And I'll, I'll evaluate whether it's worth the effort to, to even attempt it or not. <laughs> De- decide whether I will or not uh, at that point. And I'm not referring to anything that would be a paid for job. I'm kind of like thinking of, you know, just anything that I kind of like feel that I might want to have.
0: Do you keep that up as a, a practice still to this day, making things which are outside of the day job, making objects, which are just things that pique your curiosity in life?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, I certainly do um, all the time. <laughs> it's 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 like a... I, I don't know, it's like an obsession, I suppose. It's it's not I wouldn't say yeah, I wouldn't say it's it you know, I it's like it's not like O C D but it, but it's much more like curiosity, I suppose.
0: <laughs> now when you were working in the car industry, I mean I guess particularly for designers, that is a business which is notoriously taxing on your time. Yeah, were you able to keep up that practice during that period of your career when you were working that intensely as a designer within Ford or was it always focused 100% on what was going on with the vehicles that you were working on? Oh, well, I mean early on
1: uh, as a designer as a you know sort of jobbing designer so like where you 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 you're part of a team and you might have a small uh, a small portion of of the project that you're working on with, you know, some of the guys sitting either side of you, uh, either working on a competing version of your design or, or you know, competing version of whatever it is, the interior, an instrument panel, uh, an exterior. Um, yeah, you would you kind of, like, find that there are breaks in the day where you kind of, like, chatting about other projects. You know, I know I remember, I mean, I've got a pair of, of hi-fi speakers that, I made my version, the guy sitting next to me, he made his version, you know, and there was like about four of us and we were, you know, at home, we'd come back and we'd compare notes the next the next day. Uh, and I've still got my speakers here, you know, <laughs> it's just one of the projects, um, you know, there's loads of things we've done. I remember once when we were working on the first focus interior, a couple of us were talking about how, we really ought to do a, a, a small city car, and we were we were planning. Uh, we didn't actually uh, fulfil this this dream, but we were planning that we could kind of like do in parallel within the studio an uh, uh, inner city car that would challenge people's minds. And we got halfway there, uh, and then uh, and then the workload ramped up a little bit, and like we had to shelve everything. <laughs> By the time you get back to it, you, you kind of like you've moved on uh, with your ideas and moved on. You're kind of like, oh, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll pick something else up later on. You know? So yeah, there's always projects going on in, in design studios that are in parallel uh, and just fun projects that keep you keep you sane, I think.
0: <laughs> I'm really curious about that studio culture within something like a car manufacturer and how that Evolved over time because I guess with the span of the different vehicles that you worked on within Ford, you know, you were there during a period when the technology and presumably the requirements of what was going to go into a car must have changed massively. And I'm wondering how that fed into studio culture. I mean, particularly around the use of digital in the design process but also I suppose digital as an outcome of that design process that there must have been certain things within the vehicles that when you started uh, simply weren't a candidate for having digital elements to the overall experience that you were developing but then by the time you were concluding your time with with Ford uh, that must have been I would presume a, a fairly uh, heavy part of the the overall experience I mean did that feed into a change in the way you worked in and then ran those studios
1: absolutely absolutely i mean when i started i, I started at full age of 23 it was 1980 and i walked in through the door and there was no digital work going on at all it was it i mean i was there at the very end of the fully uh, what would you call it the non-digital age of car design
0: I guess the age of the car sculptor, perhaps the the analog era. Yeah, it was totally analog. Exactly.
1: I mean, so so there you know there were layout tables for the engineers and the draughtsmen, and the layout tables are about well they they must be easily about yeah I'd say about thirty meter long tables.
0: And what were you laying out on these tables?
1: They would use drafting film. Uh, and the drafting film was the width. It was about two metre wide, and they would peg one end of the, or tape one end of the drafting film to the short edge of, one ta- of the table, and they would just unroll the drafting film and cut it off as it reached the other end of the table, or sometimes they'd just leave it on the roll. And the tables would be marked out in 100 mil squares, and you would get full-size pencil drawings of... the components. So you'd get a package drawing, side views, plan views, breakouts, uh, breakout views of different details. Every aspect of the car would be drawn up on these layout tables. And there'd be rows and rows of them. So you kind of like in the design engineering drawing office, I think there were one, two, trying to remember about five rows of these tables. And you'd have about four or five draftsmen on each side of the table just drawing their components that, that relate to the building you know, of the package of the car, build up of the car. And my connection with Ford is my father was a design engineer. So he was one of the guys working on one of these tables. And so I was quite of familiar with this. But it was really, I mean, it was really useful because as you walk through the office, the drawing office, you walk past all the drawings, you can see the state of play of all of the details. So as long as you're familiar with it, you kind of like, you can see if things are progressing the way you expect or instantly spot something that's being drawn that doesn't align with your expectations of what the engineers should be working on. So it was very useful for being able to pick up the, you know, sort of like the wrong assumptions that people are making and and working down that wrong route or that route you would rather modify uh, and have, you know, sort of like sorted the way that supports the design. And so that was the era that I walked into Ford, and within a few months they installed the first of the measuring columns that you see in clay studios today. And it was made by Zeiss, and it was enormous, I mean really, really enormous, It was like three and a half, four metres high, two arms and a big steel plate. You can still see in today's modelling studios these measuring columns that you still see the heritage of those from this one Zeiss that Ford had in Dunton.
0: And what role did that play in the design process for you? So when the clay
1: modelers were sculpting the, the, the clay forms of the exteriors or the interior components that we have, the usual process before getting one of these measuring columns was they would have a... The model would be made on a steel plate with 100 mil squares marked on it, and there would be what they called the bridge which are two upright columns marked out, 100mm divisions with steel measuring plates on, and a device to hold a, a measuring tool at right angles. Then you could like make a model, put it in the middle of the steel plate, and you could then put these measuring pointers off the columns and measure how far in the clay surface is from the column surface. And you know exactly where the column is. So you would get an X, Y, Z coordinate of that one particular point. And so they would take sort of like measurements of the surface of the clay using the, you know, reams of paper and writing down the coordinates. And they would also cut cardboard templates of the surface sections. So you would get a section book and it would tell you every, every point that you've got in this section. And he would also have a cardboard template to accompany it and you could take that to the surface draftsman and he would then generate a cleaned up drawing of all of these sections and produce a set of drawings that would enable a toolmaker to cut steel tools for stamping a, a steel panel for instance and then when this zeiss machine was installed that was able to automatically put a pointer on the surface of the clay without damaging the clay and then record points at you know sort of like every half a a millimeter in three dimensions and so that point could then and at that point ford had um, developed a drafting tool computer yeah computer drafting tool that would work in 3d Uh, and so you could feed this coordinate data into the drafting tool and you could get uh, a series of points that could be joined up as a line.
0: So when you flash forward to, I guess, the last role that you had at Ford, um, how had things evolved by that point in terms of how digital was being used in the studio, but also how it was being used to, I guess, enhance the overall vehicle experience? So I suppose
1: flash forward to around about um, the mid 1990s, and the design community was starting to get aware that we, you know, we really needed to to um, get tooled up with digital processes. And at that time, there was a I think Photoshop was like an 8-bit version. You know, It was really, really not suitable for us at the time. Uh, and I think the TV companies were using a device called Paintbox. And Ford had found a company that was being um, supported by Sony called Shima Seiki. Shima Seiki uh, make knitting machines and weaving machines, I think in their other guys but they developed a software uh, and uh, a system that they could work out weaving patterns uh, on a tv screen uh, and represent them before they actually start weaving and they kind of sold the the process to ford so that we could use it for painting so we had these enormous i mean they were really enormous monitors from sony easily 36 inches across they were about 36 inches deep as well they weighed you couldn't pick one up they were just so heavy you had to have special desks to put these things on and um, they were really it was a really good system the problem was that when we first started this paintbox system was you know it had a had a puck and you had a a a pen that you could work on a pad uh, and you had some some dial devices and you had masks and you know i mean the familiar things you get with photoshop now but um, this was really rare rare stuff and i think we had seven of these machines in the studio so we all went on courses to learn how to use this and at the same time ford were working to develop a system for designers to sort of work in 3d i think it was called cdrs it was supposed to be a, a designer friendly cad program and so we were embarking on this. The problem is the CDRS was was really good fun to, to play with, uh, and I, I can remember making an A pillar trim out of uh, using CDRS. And it, it must have taken me it must have taken me a, a good day and a half to make this this A pillar trim. I, I can't remember the process of how it controlled lines. I think they were talking about NURBS, might have been something else, but. They were really unstable. So the models you made were really unstable. And if you put too many points on a line, they would lose their stability and they would snap into a a knot that you could never untangle. You, You couldn't just delete the points and it would snap back to the shape that you had. Like knitting with elastic bands, you know. <laughs> so you could get it there. It would be really. It would look beautiful. Then you put one more, just an adjustment to one of the lines, and the whole thing would just collapse into a into a, a messy knot. <laughs> Throw it away and start again. <laughs> Great fun, but um, really frustrating. Uh, and and eventually we 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 kind of like moved to Alias for um, doing our studio three dimension yeah 3D modeling you know we've always kept the clay modeling going at the same time so moving forward to present day we still use clay modeling and we still use the columns for measuring the surfaces we've made but we also now the columns actually can cut surfaces accurately to where you want them to be so you can demonstrate what the data is on your surface on your clay model as well as sort of like modify the clay model and digitize that surface and put it back into your CAD model. So you have an interaction between the two and that's really important and the reason why that's really important is the fact that the CAD data is handed over to toolmakers and the toolmakers use that CAD data as cutting information for cutting the tools that make a physical three-dimensional part. And all of the CAD programs that we have handle the data slightly differently. And so you can never be sure when you're looking at what you see on the screen that it represents what you're going to get in the physical. So, you really have to have something that kind of like confirms that tangible physicality (laughs) before you hand it over to somebody. (laughs) If you don't, you know, it's going to be a big surprise. And it does take a lot of experience, I think, to be able to fully judge what you got in CAD built on, you know, various software platforms to what you're going to get in the flesh.
0: Yeah. And I guess that that nuance, you know, being able to relate it to the real world, to the real lives of the users who are then going to be interacting with it. There's there's a real uh, need to ensure that that really does line up with expectations and that the reality of those people's lives.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I think so. But, I mean, I've grown up with all of this stuff. You see, I think everything goes in cycles, going back to you know the 80s when I first started at Ford, we would make a clay model and that would be like the ultimate expression of exactly what we want to get into production and then we would convert that clay model into cardboard templates and a list of coordinates however well they were taken from the model and you'd hand them to another guy who's never seen the model and then he would draw it in sections (laughs) and then hand those sections to a toolmaker who would then cut templates from that drawing and then hack out big chunks of steel to make the, the tool. So the difference between what we wanted as a clay model and what came out of the factory could be just as different as it is now if we didn't do that checking process. I think maybe over my, the course of my career, we got kind of like hyper focused on how accurately we represented the clay model. And maybe it doesn't really matter so much depending on the sensibility, the sculptural sensibilities of the people in the rest of the interface of that process of getting from design concept to production. Because we had the ability in the sort of like the noughties and, and beyond to be able to go clay model. Right, we want the drawing that is within, you know, one tenth of a millimeter of the surface of that clay model, and that's how it's going to come out at the end. It may be that now it's not so critical you know, because we would we we have the ability to to understand that we, you know, we were getting we were improving the the representation of the final product against the clay model. And now it's probably not necessarily so relevant to new designers who've never had that that frustration of, of seeing something sort of like so different from the clay model when it hits the streets.
0: So I wanted to ask you as well, Paul, about uh, what you're working on now, day to day, at Centaur Robotics. Um, it's been... You know, I can now see I guess a, a lot of the the pathway that the runway that has led you to, to where you are now and this challenge that you're working on. But I guess that the part of it which really intrigues me, particularly given the the particular product that you're working on around mobility and with this this wheelchair design is how you go about approaching the user-centered, part of that with something like the the central robotics product and, and how that compares to what it was like within the car industry. I mean, are you, are you following the same kind of process, the same sort of path to ensure that the user's needs are represented in this product that you're working on that you would have done in the car industry? Or are there some specific challenges that come out of it being a, a mobility product, a, a wheelchair product?
1: Well, I, I suppose in general, it's very, very similar. I mean part of the design process, there's confirmation that you're designing a product that will be successful in the market. So obviously it's, it's customer centered in that, in that way. And uh, because uh, it's a huge organizations that you know these multinationals are huge organizations. Lots of people have to confirm that the money being spent is valid and you know uh, value for money. Uh, and so for big decisions like funding, uh, you know, retooling a factory and stuff, you need some serious confirmation. So market research has always been a very good tool to be able to confirm that the, you know, what you're doing is aligned with customer expectations. And you actually, you know, you really have to think about how the customer is going to react. <laughs> because <laughs> so, you can have a fabulous project that you think is fabulous. You know, I mean, as designers, we, we'll easily be working three or four or five years in, in advance. And you, you, you can't expect somebody to be confronted with that sort of design, that, that kind of representation of a product that's, you know, sort of like that futured. You can't expect people to react the way you expect them to react straight off. You need to kind of like be able to, f- figure out what cues are going to resonate with, you know, the expectations of these customers. So you do have to figure that out somehow. Everybody approaches that slightly differently. And I think in your mind, you just have to empathize as best you can. And it becomes second nature because if you want to win market research events, you have to be able to make your products work within that framework you can't just go off on some flight of fancy and expect everybody to love it just because you do you have to understand who your audience is and and work with that
0: what's that empathy felt like for you personally with the sensor robotics wheelchair you know how have you been able to engage in in really getting into the lives of the people who are going to use it
1: uh, well i mean I can't say I fully I can. I, I can only imagine that I'm I kinda like appreciate some of the problems. And, and obviously then you have to engage in conversation with as many people as you can to add to what you can you you, you think you, you you can appreciate about this. I think all the people that have been working on Centaur uh, the Centaur wheelchair have had some experience of either friends or family that have needed to use a wheelchair in some form or other. In my case, my father was, he had a, a, a gradual uh, condition of losing the ability to um, to use his legs uh, over a period of about 10 years. And so he went from, from walking stick to frame to needing a wheelchair, uh, Sort of like for a long, a longish period of time, and so I was always aware of the, you know, the shortcomings of and, and um, problems that he would encounter. Uh, and he's, he was by no means fully disabled. I mean, he could he could walk five or six steps unaided, he, you know, transfer and move around. But wheelchairs are not friendly things to use. Uh, there are millions of problems. And so I was kind of like picking up some of the top-level ones, not having to live with a wheelchair all my life or, you know, uh, or, or, or even the better part of the day. It was really just, you know, having, you know, bring my father round for meals on, you know, various occasions, you know, weekends and stuff, um, taking him to the shops, you know, moving him around. And you suddenly realise just how unsuitable they are for going on paths and pavements and stuff.
0: Well, I suppose it also straight away, gets you thinking about the nature of these kind of products as being very much multi-user, as in there is whoever is sitting in the wheelchair, but then there's the role that you're playing in being the person that brings the wheelchair to them in rearranging the furniture in, in the house and so on, that there's all sorts of different stakeholders involved above and beyond the person who is actually seated in the chair.
1: Yes, yes exactly. You know, I mean if you wanted to go to the restaurant, we'd have to find up the restaurant. You know, we'd have to uh, figure out they they you know, they'd say, "Oh yes, we we we've got we've got space. We can we can rearrange the tables." And then you'd you'd kind of like turn up at the restaurant and there'd be a huge amount of fuss. You know, my dad didn't want all of that fuss. He didn't want the attention. You know, and then you know the table was too low for the wheelchair, and, and it would stick out, and, and everybody'd have to, you know, the waiters would have to kind of like weave around him and stuff. So he was always feeling that he was in the way, you know, and that, that's not a nice thing to do, for anybody. So I, you know, I was I was getting all of that. The fact that wheelchairs, I think they're particularly ugly you know i have i understand and appreciate why they are like what they are but it's almost like somebody's kind of come up with the ultimate engineering solution for a supportive chair that will help people get around and nobody's taking it any further you know they've just the format's the same you know it's almost like it's been an emergency solution, and the, the guy's done the emergency solution. He's solved the problem. He's walked away, and nobody's gone back to have another look and say, "Well, could I could I improve upon this?" You know.
0: Yeah, and I mean, for me, I suppose as someone who's quite new to this area. It seems like it's perhaps quite a narrow definition of the problem that existing products are solving. I mean, if the 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 job to be done, if you like, is about simply allowing someone to become mobile to get from A to B in a, a safe and efficient way, then certainly there are products out there which can achieve that. But from what you're mentioning there about the role, for instance, that it played in your your father's life. Uh, There's obviously so much more to it than that. There's all of those factors which really play a formative part in that experience in terms of how it makes the person feel and how it fits into the environment and the lives of of people around them and that those parts have been addressed, under-addressed, or at least given much less priority in existing products.
1: Mm.
0: (laughs) I think you summed it up there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's really hard to kind of like to summarize sort of wheelchair products in, in a in a way that is global. The thing about the wheelchair is that there's a wheelchair design here that we have the common one that is a solution for almost every occasion, and the way you solve it is by adding on or changing various components and. I think it works as a pragmatic engineering solution, but from a desirable piece of product design, it's lacking every attribute that you would expect from product design. And there are people, there are companies out there that are have taken that that premise, that design, and they've kind of like reiterated some of the engineering pragmatism, but in more modern materials or, uh, just focusing on lightness. But every 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 execution, every solution is still a pragmatic solution. It's something to solve the problem for people rather than be a desirable object that also solves the problem for people.
0: Was that what excited you about this, what captured your imagination, that opportunity to add some desirability to a category like this?
1: Okay, Um Yes.
0: So I think there was,
1: I mean, it's always the challenge that to, to do something uh, fresh and new. And I think my experience of just completing the work on the transit lineup inspired me a little bit, too, because I had been working on a fairly pragmatic solution to a problem, but then uh, overlaying on that uh, a desirable sort of aura to to that uh, product lineup and uh, I felt that there's, a, there's some parallel things going on with wheelchairs and you know the pragmatic solution uh, but also the person who has to live with that wheelchair probably would respond very well to having something that they actually liked the look of and felt good about being seen in it uh, which is you know completely different to the, the, the rhetoric we've been getting when you talk to people about wheelchairs. And, and they're actually people who are wheelchair rejectors, you know, who, who, who would be better off using a wheelchair, but they struggle not to because of the stigma that a wheelchair has over its appearance and what it stands for. So I thought, you know, doing something that potentially could could change that would be a really good challenge. And there's <laughs> something I was interested in. It's I like I like things. I like to do things that are hard, and uh, I felt that this was hard. But I think we could make a difference.
0: That's interesting. That I mean, I I think I guess any product design challenge comes with its its hard parts, uh, and there are always compromises, whatever category you're working in. But you know, when you think about what you've had to do to get the vision for the centre chair to where it is. What do you think has been the hardest of those compromises to strike to be able to, to achieve that vision of what you wanted to realize for, for the users of this? I think it was it was the
1: the decision to to
0: focus
1: on just reduced mobility rather than trying to deliver uh, a solution a wheelchair solution that would be able to accommodate all forms of disability or need Uh, and so you know we we had several challenges i mean we've got a startup we're trying to get traction within the company with sort of momentum Uh, you actually need to have a product that has a fairly large market but that can be satisfied with a single product if possible you know, with as few changes as you can get so that you can make a lot of wheelchairs, in this case, that are all the same and satisfy quite a large audience. And if you can do that, then that will establish the company, Centaur. And once we're established, we kind of like then focus on broadening the offerings from Centaur to accommodate sort of like more requirements as they're needed or as as we can find solutions to those needs. So it really was, who's our target audience that would support our establishing ourselves and growing to a size where we could then do more R&D and, you know, sort of like expand the range of Centaur robotics wheelchairs.
0: So as I understand it with the Centaur chair, there's an element of the, the chair and its capability, which is connected, which is something that interacts with a, a mobile app and, and with a, a data service. Is that part of the vision for how the capability of the chair might evolve over time? Is it something that you anticipate being able to to, to evolve and add to the experience through those kind of channels?
1: Well, I think, yes, I, I suppose I always kind of think modular and I, and I think that's helped when we were doing the transit stuff because all those vehicles are phenomenally modular you can start to see how you can you can build little building blocks kind of like can can build you up to quite a sophisticated solution a sophisticated and and dedicated solution for people's needs obviously the the, the wheelchair has to have a brain because it's it's a balancing wheelchair and so in order to control that chair there is a device built in t- inside it that has probably greater capability than just keeping this chair upright and moving it around the room at your command. And so we were looking at, well, what, what else can it do? Well, you know, it can know when you're in it. It can know where you go. It can monitor your um, your basic health conditions, you know, you know, sort of how much you weigh every day um so that, you know it could help you the time is you know if if it knows that you need to take medication it, you know if you can log in there that that you take medication certain times a day it could give you a reminder you know there's all sorts of things that if you're with this chair all the time you could ask it to do you know, probably don't want to do that for for the base model and it might not be that we ever implement any of the things that I've just talked about, but it's capable of doing that. So we kind of like just listed out a load of what ifs and why would I like to have this wheelchair type scenarios. And I think we will implement the ones we feel have the most merit for the most people that are potentially going to want this wheelchair. So that's as the, as the product rolls out. We will tune that because it is software. And so you can add and modify features like you you get updates in operating systems on computers. You know, so it'll be very, very similar to that.
0: Well, we'll obviously put a link in the show notes so that people can go and have a look at where the product has got to so far. And I've got to say to my eyes, it is a, a real Leap forward a real progression of what this category can represent for users and, and what it might mean in people's lives. So I think it's it's a wonderful thing to have have worked on. Um, one final thing I wanted to ask you, Paul, is a little bit broader, I guess, than what you are working on currently and what you've worked on in cars. But you mentioned right at the beginning about that tendency I guess to think of your work as being sculptural Mm. and you know now when you think about something like the the centaur chair and the ability to embed that intelligence and that sort of performative nature into to an object into a a physical product like that does that excite you about sort of other categories where you might want to apply that sculptural talent of yours you know the the ability to make objects come alive with all of these digital connected technologies that we have access to now well it does
1: although i i couldn't i couldn't point to any one thing in particular that excites me apart from maybe concluding or completing you know what i've the possibilities of what we could do within within the central framework of of things i think the you know the the, the basic module the the, the the balancing moving bot part of the central wheelchair is you know one of these building blocks that we can we can take a lot further and I have a lot of ideas that we you know would probably take beyond my career <laughs> my second career so I don't, beyond that to uh, to actually realize. But I have a lot of still personal transportation solutions in my head that I'd like to exorcise, if you like.
0: <laughs> Well, I do hope you'll stay in touch with Mex and keep us posted both on the the Centaur product and if any of those other areas which are intriguing you currently start to come to fruition. But it's it's been really wonderful to have this opportunity to talk and I appreciate you, you know, sharing so openly about your your career story and um, where you've got to with the current venture as well. Thank you. So, I don't know about you, but I tend to enjoy these conversations most when they take me into areas that I don't know much about. And wheelchairs definitely fall into that category for me. And I think perhaps that's why I found Paul such a rewarding person to talk to. There's also something about craftspeople. You know, whether, like Paul, you think of yourself as a sculptor or you think of yourself as a carpenter or a pixel maker... You just kind of hear it in people's voices when they live and breathe a thing. So obviously I'm continuing to record these interviews and I hope they're helping people throughout the MEX community to stay in touch with new ideas while we're all still a bit limited in what we can do to gather in person. And there are also a few new bits of writing up on the MEX site. I jotted down some thoughts about... chicken in my oven started talking to my wireless earbuds the other day. Uh, There's a tale of user experience in the real world for you if there ever was one. You can go check that out up on the the MEX site. Uh, There's also some photos and extracts from a very old book that I found about what being modern meant a hundred years ago. Now it includes this little passage, which, to my mind, makes it worth a look in of itself. So this is Professor William Edward Ayrton writing in 1901. And he said, if a person wanted to call to a friend he knew not where he would call in a very loud electromagnetic voice heard by him who had the electromagnetic ear silent to him who had it not. Where are you, he would say. A small reply would come, I am at the bottom of a coal mine, or crossing the Andes, or in the middle of the Atlantic. Or, perhaps in spite of all the calling, no reply would come, and the person would then know that his friend was dead. I mean, people don't write about smartphones like that these days. And uh, more's the, the pity. You know, you're know, you just not going to get drama like that on The Verge or Engadget. So if any of that grabs you, head on over to mobileuserexperience.com where you will find it all, along with the show notes for this episode with links to all of the stuff that Paul and I talked about, including that splendid Center Robotics wheelchair. I'll be back soon with another episode. But in the meantime do stay in touch. The email address to reach me is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. And do please keep sharing this podcast with your friends so that we can keep welcoming new listeners into the MEX community. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.